Welcome back to the Cloth Cultures podcast for the British Textile Biennial with me, Amber Butchart. Throughout this series and an accompanying exhibition at the Howarth Art Gallery, I am exploring movement, migration and making through cloth, using pieces found in the Gawthorpe Textile Collection to tell the stories behind what we wear. Focusing on four fabrics, silk, linen, wool and cotton, I'm investigating the global strands of local stories that link Lancashire, at the heart of the textile industry in Britain, to areas throughout Europe, Asia, Africa and the Americas. In this episode, we're focusing on wool. In the collections at Gawthorpe is a jacket by the French designer Christian Lacroix, created in the early 1990s. The jacket is tailored from brightly coloured checked fabric, woven blue, green, yellow and red. It's taken the traditional idea of tartan and modernised it, also through embellishments like sequins and rhinestones to emphasise the pattern and add a certain amount of bling. Czechs and plaid had a high fashion profile throughout the 1990s, from the music of grunge to the costumes for the film Clueless. But the history of this fabric tells us very different stories, of colonisation and oppression and of freedom and rebellion. First, I wanted to speak to someone about how tartan became associated with Scottish identity. So hi, I'm Dr Sally Tuckett and I'm a lecturer in dress and textile history at the University of Glasgow. So I research how dress and clothing of the past can tell us about historical societies and historical cultures. And my particular focus is on Scotland in the 18th and 19th centuries. What surviving evidence do we have linking woollen checked cloth to Scotland? The earliest surviving artefact that we have for checked woolen cloth in Scotland is a tiny scrap of cloth which is now in the National Museums of Scotland and which dates from around 230 AD. It was found in Falkirk, which is in the central belt, and it was stuffed in the top of a pot which had a whole load of Roman coins in, and that's where the date seems to come from. It's known as the Falkirk tartan today, and it's a very much simple check of cloth, so it's made of two different yarns of two different natural shades, and that's basically all you need to get a check cloth. Because it's so simple to make a check cloth um, with the two different shades, that's all you need, um, evidence probably can be found much earlier, but in terms of surviving artefacts, that's the earliest that we've got so far. Historically, wool culturally is important in that before industrialization, pretty much every household would have been involved in some form of cloth manufacture uh, in, or some sort of process for cloth manufacture. So for woolen cloth, it would have been spinning or carding that was likely done in the home. Weaving was more specialized and that would have been done by a trained weaver, but some sort of cloth production was going on in the home pretty much all the time throughout Scotland. There's also a practical level to wool's importance in Scotland in that it's not known for its sunny, dry, warm climate. So wool is a useful cloth to have. Wool and cloth is useful to have in, in that kind of environment. Um, and it can come in a range of qualities. So it can suit uh, a range of uh, financial abilities and social status. So even poor people wearing woolen cloth and then richer people would be wearing nicer woolen cloth. So it makes sense that it's a key part of most people's wardrobes in Scotland. Today, I think the significance of the Scottish woolen industry has taken on slightly different meanings compared to, say, the 18th or 19th century. 
economically, it still provides jobs in certain areas. So there's still uh, manufacturing centers in uh, the borders in Hoik and up north in around like the Elgin area in the northeast. Um, there's a different focus, though. So there is more focus on the luxury goods, the merino, the cashmere. Um, and there's lots of threat from co- foreign competition and changing demand can severely impact these markets. So they're under a lots of pressure. Um, culturally, I think the significance of the woolen industry has also changed in recent times, um, particularly with the growth in recent years in handmade and sustainable goods. Um, there's the ongoing debate between craft and industry, which is better to have a handmade locally sourced material or something that is mass produced from somewhere else, but is done more cost effectively, perhaps. And we also tend to talk more about the sentimental and emotional things that we attach to cloth and clothing. We talk about that more today than people did in the past. And that's part of what my job is so great to do is to try and find out what people felt about their clothing. They don't always write it down. Um, so we have a, a, like, we might have sentimental attachment, um, connected to a hand-knitted garment from Shetland, for example. And the the skill and the craft that goes into the hand-knitted Shetland woolen industry is incredible. Um, And of course, there's all these meanings that people ascribe to tartan, which is another story entirely. It's difficult to say when woolen tartan becomes properly associated with Highland dress. Um, Highland dress was not always necessarily made of tartan, but it's thought that this shift likely occurred around the 16th and 17th century, um, when what was often described as just a cloak or a mantle starts to become described more as the belted plaid or the great plaid. Um, And this is a huge expanse of cloth, which can be anything from between six to 12 yards long. It can be absolutely massive, and it would have been wrapped around the waist and the torso, And and certainly by the 17th century, we start to see clear connections being made between the descriptions of this cloth and the garment that it was creating. Um, They often describe it just as cloth of diverse colours, multicoloured cloth. These terms thrown in, tartan itself is not always necessarily used. It's just sort of description of the multicoloured processes that are there. But by the 17th century, there's certainly more evidence of these two being connected quite closely. Could you tell me about the Jacobite Uprising, Battle of Culloden and the Prescription Acts that followed? The Battle of Culloden in April 1746 was just one of a number of attempts made by the exiled Stuart dynasty to reclaim the British throne from the Hanoverian monarchs. The 1745 Rising, as it was called, was led by Prince Charles Edward Stuart. and He was the grandson of James VII and II, who, when, when he fled Britain in the 1680s, sparked what some people call the Glorious Revolution, and set in chain a, range, a step of motions which became the Jacobite cause, which spanned pretty much almost a century, more or less. Prince Charles Edward Stuart, probably better known to most people as Bonnie Prince Charlie, um, was initially successful when he landed in Scotland in 1745. His army occupied Edinburgh and they won a battle at the Battle of Preston Pans, but they made an ill-fated decision to then march on into England. And this stretched his forces and it stretched his capacity. And so his attempt to regain the throne for his father ended at the Battle of Culloden. So having reached Derby in England, the Jacobite army then had to turn tail and flee up to the north of Scotland. So right up to the north near Inverness. And that's where the Battle of Culloden took place. And so in April 1746, they were soundly defeated by the government forces. Bonnie Prince Charlie fled. Um, He went over the highlands, um, over to Skye, famous Sky Boat song, Um, not so famously, apparently also dressed like a woman to avoid capture, Um, and eventually ended up in France on the continent and um, became an alcoholic, basically. He fled. What was left of the army was scattered and hunted down by the Duke of Cumberland's forces. The Jacobite army was perceived to be mainly made of Highlanders. We know this was not necessarily the case. Um, 
Scots from all over the country supported the Jacobite cause. The Jacobite army also had people from outside Scotland in it. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't uniquely Highland, but that was the perception. Bonnie Prince Charlie himself also wore Highland dress at various stages of the campaign. So he associated himself with this distinctive Highland look. Um, he was showing himself to be a future king of Scotland. That's what he wanted to show himself as. And so the perception was that the Highlanders, because they had been such a crucial part of the Jacobite campaign, they were the ones that were going to be punished the most when they lost at Culloden. The rising had been dangerously close to being successful, and so retribution was pretty harsh. Um, the Highlanders not only had distinctive dress, but they had a distinctive language and a distinctive culture to the rest of Scotland. So it was thought that the most effective way of preventing more risings was to crush this culture and quote-unquote, encourage assimilation. And this leads to the Prescription Acts of 1746. These were designed to break the clan system. Weapons were banned. Education was strictly monitored with oaths of allegiance from the teachers required. And, of course, we have what became known as the Disclosing Act, where Highland dress was banned. And this is where men and boys were stopped from wearing Highland dress. And they defined Highland dress as the plaid, the filibeg, which is the little kilt, trues, shoulder belts, or any part of whatever peculiarly belongs to the Highland garb. And they also said that no tartan or party-coloured plaid or stuff shall be used for greatcoats or uppercoats. So tartan itself wasn't banned, but because by this point tartan and Highland dress were so inextricably entwined and connected that it was almost guilty by association. A first offence could result in six months in prison, and a second offence meant transportation to the colonies for seven years. So they meant business by this. And I think it shows the importance of the power of clothing in that they really thought that this clothing was so entwined with this culture that if they took away the clothing, they would take away their identity. They would take away their reason for supporting Jacobites and encourage them to be part of what was then being starting to be called as, as Britain. The act itself, however, was really hard to enforce. Um, you try telling people today what they can and cannot wear and you're automatically going to get some kind of response. Arrests were certainly made, but there were loopholes in the act and people exploited these loopholes to the full. It only referred to men and boys clothing. So some people who were arrested claimed that they were wearing a woman's plaid or that they were wearing a blanket. Justices of the peace who were responsible for um, sentencing people who'd been arrested often just sort of turned a blind eye, did a bit of a wink and a nod and be like, it's your wife's plaid, isn't it? So you, you can move on. Um, one account even suggests that a man stitched his kilt up the middle to make basically a pair of shorts. Um, and there's nothing about shorts being in the act. It was just the kilt. So he managed to evade it that way. But by the 1760s, enthusiasm for enforcing the act had, had waned um, and enforcement died down. But it was in place until 1782. So for nearly 40 years, this act was in place. And even if people weren't necessarily following it or being punished for it, I think the fact that it was still there says quite a lot about how, again, the threat they saw in this, in this outfit, in this type of clothing. What place did Highland regiments such as Blackwatch play in keeping tartan traditions alive? The Highland regiments played quite a significant role in keeping tartan traditions alive. And this is mainly stemmed from the fact that the regiments were exempted from the Disclothing Act, which was brought in after the Battle of Culloden. So if you were in a regiment, you could still wear Highland dress. And this seems to have partly been a way to help recruitment, working on the idea that if men were really attached to their clothing, then they would join up. Um, whether people actually joined up because of this or not is another question entirely. 
But military recruitment had been occurring in the Highlands since the 1720s. And the most well-known is probably the Black Watch Regiment. And they wore the belted plaid, which was made from dark green and blue tartan. Um, you would probably recognise it today. It exists in a number of forms today still. Regiments were initially identified by the colours of the facings on their jackets. But in the 18th century, in Europe in general, you see an increased importance placed on uniform appearance. The idea that all members of the same regiment should be dressed exactly alike. And individual colonels were responsible for these uniforms and they decided what their regiments would wear. And so for the Highland regiments, this meant tartan. There was debate amongst the regiments about whether that should be the kilt or the trues, um, but it was basically up to the colonel to decide which one his men should wear. And it's thought that these groups of men all wearing the same tartan contributed to our understanding or our perception of clan tartans today. You have groups of men all wearing the same thing. It's standardised and it doesn't change. In terms of keeping tartan traditions alive, the Highland regiments therefore really kind of created their own. We wouldn't have had that level of standardization before the regiments came in. Um, but what they did do, thanks to the various European and colonial conflicts of the 18th century, was they helped keep tartan and Highland dress very much in the public eye at a time when it was supposed to be banned in Scotland itself. At what point did tartan become associated with Scottish identity as a whole? There's no single identifiable point where tartan becomes associated with Scottish identity as a whole. It's more a case of a number of events which build upon each other that help to solidify the idea that tartan was not just for Highlands, but for Scottish people as in general. So as we talked about already, we have the Jacobite Rising of 1745 and the subsequent Disclothing Act, which despite its best efforts actually meant people still talked about tartan just as much as they had before. Um, and you have the visibility of the Highland regiments all dressed in Highland dress. Added to this, at the end of the 18th century, you have the growth of romanticization and an interest in the ancient Gallic culture, some of which was actually kind of made up and not really real. But people, people were really interested in this idea of a romantic, nostalgic past. So instead of the Highlands being viewed as a place of danger or a place of um, backwards, primitive um, society, it started to be viewed more as a romantic place, somewhere that people could go and look at the scenery and... Um, engage in a lifestyle which, um, which again, which they felt was part of the past rather than the present. Ultimately, though, there was still a key turning point um, that built on top of all of this development from the 18th century, and that was the royal visit by King George IV to Edinburgh in 1822. It had been over 150 years since a reigning monarch had visited Scotland, so this was a big deal. And one of the event's orchestrators was Sir Walter Scott, otherwise known as the Wizard of the North. And he was anxious to make a good impression. Um, and he was anxious to show that uh, Scotland was loyal to the established monarchy. There was no more Jacobitism. But he still drew on the Jacobite heritage. And he organised a series of parades, balls and levees. And he also created a list of guidelines for those attending, um, which included strongly encouraging men to wear Highland dress, which he called the complete national costume. So that's one of the first times we have in print this reference to Highland dress being national. But again, it builds on all those events of the 18th century that came before it. Not everyone appreciated this effort by Sir Walter Scott. There were various comments that flew around about the affectation of Celticism. And one man called it absurd and nauseous. Um, but they seem to have been in the minority, and it was at this event, which acts as a watershed for tartan and highland dress as we know it today, you start to see elements that we still recognise, the kilt, the short jacket, 
the hose. These had all existed in the 18th century, but from this point on, they do start to become more standardised. And so what part did Walter Scott play in the sort of growth of clan tartans at this time as well? Walter Scott was, as I said, one of the main organisers of the events around the royal visit of 1822. And so he arguably did contribute to the sense that if you were wearing tartan, you should wear tartan according to a clan. He certainly facilitated the rise of clan tartans. He wrote to chiefs and said, come to this event in 1822 and all your men should be wearing the same tartan. And this kind of sparked a panic among the lots of the chiefs who realised that their men were not wearing the same tartan. So they had to write off to manufacturers and say, please send us a bunch of this tartan so that we can all look the same. And there was a rush on tartan, a 19th century rush on tartan manufacture. Um, he was also perhaps instrumental in um, the perception that Highland dress was very much, or, or perpetuating the sense that Highland dress was still just a masculine thing. He felt that the ladies should not be decked out in tartan. Um, if they really wanted to, they could wear a sash of tartan, but that was about it. Um, and so most of the women seem to have just what, dressed according to the fashionable uh, styles of the time. Um, but Walter Scott was just one wheel in the cog um, when it comes to clan tartans. Towards the end of the 18th century, various elite social groups, mainly Scottish nobles who were spending most of their time in London, uh, were keen to preserve what they saw as Highland culture and society. Um, so the music, the language and the dress. They were worried that it was all disappearing. One of these groups was the Highland Society of London. And in 1815, they started to collect tartans as they were worried that people were going to forget what their clan tartan was. Um, never mind that there might not have ever been a clan tartan there in the first place. So they wrote off to all the clan chiefs, asking them to send a sample of their clan tartan so they could preserve it for, for posterity in large volumes. The trouble was that not all clan chiefs knew what their tartan was. Um, clan tartans were a new phenomenon. And prior to this, it tended to be tartans that were associated with the district or an area. Um, even just individuals within the same family could be wearing a completely different tartan. Um, so most of the chiefs had to write to one of the manufacturers called Wilsons of Bannockburn, and they were based just outside Stirling in the Central Belt, which was one of the uh, main production areas for uh, woolen cloth in the 18th century. And Wilsons of Bannockburn, I think, were more instrumental than Walter Scott in creating clan tartans because they were the ones that actually made them. They supplied tartan for anyone who wanted it, and they would adapt new they would create new designs and they would adapt old ones. Basically, what the customer wanted, the customer got. So if somebody wrote saying, I really like what I saw the McDonald wearing in Tartan the other day, but I want it with a, a little line of yellow, they would add it. They would do it. And bam, you've got a new Tartan pattern. So as I mentioned, they were quite instrumental in providing Tartans for the 1822 visit. And it kind of snowballs from there. Um, clan Tartans, I think, were very, very much there for a commercial enterprise of the early 19th century. Um, but it was an enterprise that has worked and it's still felt today. What does tartan symbolise today? Today, tartan can symbolise or represent many things. It has rebellious connotations, uh, thanks to the Jacobites, um, but also thanks to the punk movement of the 1970s. Um, but I think it also has connotations of order and control when you think about the military and also the many, many school uniforms that use some form of tartan as part of them, even schools that are nowhere near Scotland. Um, and to many, I think it represents belonging and kinship, particularly those of Scottish descent who are spread throughout the world. But 
For me, thanks to the fact that tartan can be made of innumerable innumerable color combinations and check sizes, that you can adapt it to pretty much any purpose you like. Um, I think the aesthetic appeal is something that often gets overshadowed by the historical meanings and attachments. Uh, today, for instance, we put much more meaning behind the colors that are used in tartan, which is not something that happened historically. Um, and I think sometimes the fact that it's just it can look great is part of its appeal. I think also the fact that today it can be used and worn by anybody um, is really important. Even superheroes have their own tartan that's been designed for them now. And despite the idea that clan tartans should only be worn by clan members, um, that's not necessarily true. And I think anybody can wear it. The fact that tartan is both traditional and modern is part of its appeal. And I think that's something that we can all embrace. This mix of the traditional and modern is evident in the Christian Lacroix jacket in the Gawthorpe collection. And by the point the jacket was created in the early 1990s, tartan had clearly found its way onto the Paris catwalk. But tartan has also travelled much further afield. Talika Kirkland has traced some of these journeys. Hello, I am Talika Kirkland. I'm a lecturer of cultural and historical studies at London College of Fashion. I'm also the primary researcher and founder and creative director for the Costume Institute of the African Diaspora. And I'm also a doctoral research candidate at Goldsmiths University. Can you tell me about the Costume Institute of the African Diaspora? So the Costume Institute of the African Diaspora started about nine years ago and the point of it, the aim of it, was really to bring together information about clothing and dress and costume and adornment from all over the African diaspora, primarily starting with the Caribbean, because I was looking at clothing and costume history and wanting to find information and couldn't find any. And when I took myself off to do a bit of research in the Caribbean, specifically on um, dress history and um, adornment history, realised that there actually wasn't very much information that had been collected and um, written down. A lot was oral history or just what people remembered about something else, or, or they hadn't really even remembered. They were just, you know, stuff that had happened in their family. Essentially, nothing had really been catalogued or um, written critically at all. But the, the organisation has kind of grown and grown because I realised that it didn't have any one specific place to focus on. It was lots of many different places. And so it's very much dependent on the people, the people of African heritage and where they found themselves. And so, yes, we just kind of keep growing and expanding to try and include as many people as possible. Can you tell me about the emergence of tartan in the form of shuka cloth in Kenya and its significance for Maasai people? This is a really interesting story, the development of shukas in for the Maasai in Kenya, well, in, in Maasai land, let's call it that, because Maasai land actually borders Kenya and Tanzania. Though I was speaking to a professor at the University of Nairobi, and she was telling me about a gentleman by the name of P.D. Dodia, who was an Indian gentleman, who had been designing the Maasai shukas for quite a long time, and had, was, was kind of designing these patterns 
that were very similar to tartan. And then someone gifted him with a book of tartan patterns because they said to him, you know, these, these um, patterns are very similar to tartan. Shukas originally were animal skins, specifically um, lion skin. But, you know, um, lions are protected and you can't go around killing lions and wearing their skin. And so there were lion skin imbibed with the earth of Maasai land, which is red, like red terracotta. And so that colouring has been put into, was, was then created, carried on into the shukas that we see now to, so that they could still tie within the Maasai traditions. And so Dodia designed these patterns and had them made in acrylic. And then someone gifted him this book of tartan patterns to say, you know, your stuff looks very much like tartan. Here's this, here's this book. And so he then started adapting those patterns that he saw, adapting those tartan patterns into the designs that he was making already for the shukas and, and then had those made up for the Maasai. And that's how the Maasai now come to be wearing tartan. <laughs> I tried to get hold of um, the Dodia family because they have, they still have their factory where they weave and make and and everything, but I, I just couldn't get hold of anybody, unfortunately. It's an amazing story. And what's the story and significance of tartan for Zulu people in South Africa? So firstly, there is the um, involvement of the Scottish regiments in the Anglo-Zulu Wars as part of the British Army's campaign of colonisation. So it was the, there were lots of different Scottish regiments, but it was one of them was the 92nd Regiment of Foot, which was the Princess Louise Regiment, and they wore trues and kilts in that regiment. And the leader of the Zulus at the time, who was called Shetswayu, he saw the kilts that the Scottish soldiers were wearing and recognised the kilts as being very similar to the mantles that the Zulu warriors wore. And the mantles that they wore at the time involved a kind of kilt that was made out of animal tails. And he knew that the Scottish had been, had fought against the British for their own independence and had lost in centuries previously. And having understood that they themselves, the Scottish themselves, were kind of defeated warriors, if you like, recognised them as defeated warriors and who had fought valiantly once upon a time, but were now um, absorbed into the British army and in this context were fighting for the British army but were once enemies themselves of the British. He, he kind of understood them to be aligning an, an interesting dichotomy of thought where it, he recognised them as being old enemies of the British as they themselves, as the Zulus themselves were enemies of the British, but also understood them at the same time to be part of the colonising forces, which were obviously the Zulus were fighting against. So there's that part of the history. And then there's also Isaiah Shembe, who started the Nazareth Baptist Church, which is colloquially known as the Shembe Church, which is part of the um, history that we showed in the exhibition, where during the colonial campaign, the British were very much against the Zulus wearing traditional clothing at all, but especially them wearing traditional clothing to church. And so banned the Zulus from wearing their traditional clothing. They used to punish them, um, beat them, etc., fine them, etc. 
if they wore traditional clothing. And so Isaiah Shembe, after what he believed he, he had a call from God to start his own church where Zulus who wanted to practice Christianity were allowed to do so and still wear part of their own clothing, but so that the Zulus who were wanting to go to church wouldn't be persecuted and so that they wouldn't be watched, heavily watched by the British magistrates. He syncretized Zulu clothing and used colonial clothing to cover up or replace, if you want, parts of Zulu clothing. So for example, the, the mantle that the Zulu men wear, he used the kilt as a replacement for the mantle. The Zulu men also wear a band around their head, which would have been made out of um, animal fur or animal skin. And he used the pith helmet as a cover for the headband. And varying other parts of colonial attire, he used as a cover for the type of Zulu attire that they would have worn. Now, this successfully befuddled the British because they just saw the Zulus as, you know, doing some funny little thing where they're just wearing um, these clothing and doing this funny dance because the, the there's who wears this particular outfit, the pith helmet, the kilt, the white shirt and tie with the black and white socks. It's the dancers of the Shembe church who are usually the young men and women. The women's outfit is a red shirt with a kilt and a beaded headband. It's a, an actual kilt, which is itself tartan as well. And so the British just saw them as kind of dressing up in colonial clothes and, you know, doing funny little dances and, and left it at that, right? Not really understanding that these were syncretizations. These, this outfit was a syncretization of their own Zulu clothing. So successfully managed to avoid any persecution from the British in that type of way. And so we used the clothing. We, we, one of the models in the exhibition was the clothing from the young women of the Shembe Church, who also dances the Scotch dance during initiation time. So again, it was the red shirt, the beaded headband and the kilt which was ridiculous to try and get hold of. And unfortunately, I couldn't actually get hold of the kilt that is worn by the young women at the Shembe Church. And so I had to go through this massive process of making this kilt myself. And I emailed Brian Wilton at the Scottish Tartan Authority, sent him a picture of the young women from the Shembe Church and said, I need to make this kilt. I need to get this, this wool for this kilt. Where can I get it? Couldn't find anywhere in Scotland, couldn't find anywhere in London. So I literally got, I think it was three or four meters of gabardine wool and did a tartan pattern onto this gabardine wool to try and recreate this kilt. And, you know, I mean, it turned out okay. It wasn't perfect, but it was, at, it was the best we could do at the time within such short notice. So what are the origins of Madras cloth? I mean, first of all, you've got the East India Company who, oh, I think it's from the 17th century, the East India Company started going over to India to develop their own textile industry and trade and commerce and all of that type of thing. Now, the East India Company had taken a part of the southwesterly part of the Indian coast, a small part of the of the southwesterly part of the Indian coast, which was a tiny little fishing village called Madras. And um, they developed it into this huge city, which is now called Chennai. 
um, the Indian government renamed it Chennai in, I think, 92, 91, 92, something like that. And the East India Company essentially had many soldiers and people like that who were protecting their interests in developing textile and the textile industry. They'd also bribed and blackmailed lots of weavers, lots of Indian weavers to come down from the north of India into Madras, into the city of Madras, and to, to, to carry on developing this textile industry. So that's how the, and, and before I go on any further, the development of Madras as a cloth was involved in India anyway, right? Like that's been going on for centuries, way before the British got there. So, and again, their Madras was a kind of a very, a very loose, very soft muslin type of fabric. It wasn't the Madras cloth that you see in the Caribbean now, but they do, they have had in India, I think since about the, the second century, their own type of cloth where again, because of the warp, understanding how the warp and the weft um, crosshatch, they would have put particular colors into the warp and the weft so that lines and different patterns meet and cross at right angles, very much like how tartan does, but in a different formation. And so that type of pattern had, had existed in India for centuries before the British got there. However, the, the British got there through the East India Company, bribed and blackmailed weavers from the north of India to come down to Madras to help them develop their own textile industry. That then coupled with um, Scottish regiment soldiers who came into India as part of the military campaigns, influenced the development of Dras. That then also coupled with Scottish weavers themselves and Scottish businessmen who were also moving into India to develop their own businesses and make their own headway in the textile industry. All of these things come together to develop the type of Madras cloth that you have now, right? So at the time, and we're talking by now, we're talking kind of like the 19th century, you've got a type of Madras cloth that wasn't necessarily fixed it was, it was bright colours, like it would have been reds and blues and oranges and pinks, but it wasn't necessarily very strongly fixed. And so because it wasn't very strongly fixed, that when it was washed, it would run. And so that itself became a type of um, marketing. They decided to market the fact that Madras cloth ran when it was washed and they, they called it running Madras or something like that. Um, and sold it on the fact that it would run and that you'd get a different colour madras once you'd washed it a couple of times, right? Um, and so there, there was that because it got sent over to America. Americans bought it by the bolt load, so they bought loads of madras. It became a different type of fabric in terms of status to the fabric that is sent to the Caribbean, which is really interesting because the fabric that was sent to the Caribbean was obviously being sent there for a lot of the enslaved populations and freed um, men and women were buying madras as part of their own outfits, you know, uh, wanting to develop their own type of um, fashion styles and whatever else. And of course, people who were other people within the plantation economy were also buying madras and wearing madras. However, in the United States, 
they're using Madras and the, the development of Madras started to be used by much more middle class people and, and much more, many more people who were thought of themselves as being a higher class and would go to kind of like Ivy League universities and, and institutions of higher learning and all that type of thing. So now what's really interesting is when you get into the, the 20th century and the 21st century, well, definitely kind of the middle of the 20th century, you have this view of Madras as being this really salubrious fabric, right? Which is worn in the Hamptons, in, in they, wear, they make shorts out of it and it's worn in the Hamptons in, in golfing jackets. And, you know, they, they have patchwork Madras. I, I think they have patchwork Madras trousers. And I think they, they've also become pajamas and, and all of this type of thing, which is really, really interesting because literally, a few hundred or so miles from the um, southerly coast of America in the Caribbean, the fabric is not seen like that. And it's exactly the same fabric. So yeah, that's, that's how Madras came to be through India and into the Caribbean. Tartan fabric has traveled around the world, becoming identified with different areas and ethnicities. The Christian Lacroix jacket in the Gawthorpe collection connects Lancashire with Paris, Scotland, South Africa and the Caribbean. But the fabric that is most closely associated with Lancashire is undoubtedly cotton. So when and why did this association begin? And what evidence of it do we still find in the landscape and architecture? Join me next time on the Cloth Cultures podcast when we'll be exploring the global story of cotton from India to West Africa and the Americas via the mills of Lancashire. You can find out more about the British Textile Biennials commissions and programme of events on Twitter at Textile Biennial and on Facebook and Instagram at British Textile Biennial. See you next time. <laughs>